Good morning. Uh, This morning we are reading out of Acts 15. If you don't have a Bible, there are some underneath the seats in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, we um, encourage you to take that one with you and um, for your own. We are reading verses 1 through 35. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their own way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they, came in, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, and that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had it in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose from men among them, to send them to Antioch from Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds. Although we give them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Saul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no no greater burden than those required, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of of its encouragement. The And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, 
teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I am the uh, lead pastor, and we are continuing in the book of Acts this morning. Now, before we get into it, um, I want to pause and just wish you all a happy Father's Day. So, happy Father's Day. We've got a lot of new fathers around here, which is pretty awesome. Congratulations, you guys. You are well on your way to your classic dad bodies. Um, it's inevitable. It comes. That's right. That's right. Um, anyway... We want to uh, say Happy Father's Day. Um, we know that anytime we celebrate family, um, there's a lot to celebrate. God has shown a lot of grace and has been very good. But there is also the admittance and the reality that um, there's a lot of woundedness and a lot of hurt that often comes um, with days like this. Our families are part of the glorious ruin, right? They're glorious in the sense that they reflect God and His character and the way He created things to be, and they are ruined by sin, and our dads are no different. Man, our dads, uh, there are pieces of them that, that, that call out to us, and, and there are pieces of them that, that shame us or hurt us. And, um, and so we want to celebrate the good, um, and if you are a dad, man, um, we celebrate the fact that you have a heavenly Father that is equipping you for fatherhood, that even though um, you do bring your own brokenness into fatherhood. You can trust that the grace of God is greater than your effort and your failure. Um, And if you have um, suffered at the hands of your father, which sadly is is not uncommon enough, um, then I want to extend to you uh, grace and uh, say there is grace for you. And we mourn with you because that is not the way it's supposed to be. And you have a heavenly father that will meet you in your pain and will comfort you in ways that no words ever could. And so we celebrate with you that God redeems and God restores. Okay, so let me pray for us uh, before we jump in. Father, we do thank you for the gift of fatherhood. And Father, I thank you that you are the good father, that you're the mother, the, the, the model and the original of fatherhood, that you are strong and you give and you are gracious and you are loving and uh, you give good gifts and you call out our best and you sacrifice for our good that we might be your children. So we thank you that we um, can be adopted into your family as we believe in Jesus. As our sins are forgiven and our slate is wiped clean, we not only get a reprieve from what we've done, but we also get a full record of things we never did. Um, We get to stand even as Jesus stands in your presence as your children. So Father, we pray for our fathers and ask for grace, uh, ask for humility, ask for joy, ask for strength. And the kind of wisdom that isn't just about how to do dad things, but the kind of wisdom that comes from knowing you and knowing grace. May our men, um, as they father, be those who can say they have drunk deeply of grace and have pointed their families to the same well. I pray for those that this morning are mourning um, the, the hurt that came from dads that, um, that didn't. Uh, we know, Lord, that's a reality, and that's a sad part of the brokenness of the sin in this world. And we pray that this morning, Spirit, you would comfort their hearts, that you would draw them near, that they would know the joy of coming to their Abba Father, their Heavenly Father, invited into the presence of grace, to be loved, to be cherished, to be celebrated and made new. So, Father, we thank you, uh, and we pray for your rich blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys, this morning we are at the heart of the book of Acts. We've been in Acts. Um, this is our 27th message in the book of Acts. 
Um, and, uh, and, and over the 15 chapters that we've been in, we have covered really the first half of the book. So uh, we're at the central crisis this morning. Acts 15 recounts for us a lot, of the, a lot of tension that's been building up over the first 15 chapters comes to a head in this chapter. So we're halfway through the book. There's 28 chapters total. Uh, and so we're halfway through the book, and we're also at kind of the critical turning point for the early church. Um, the early church was under a lot of attack, and we've read about that through the first 15 chapters. There's been a lot of attack, a lot of tension, and most of it's come from the outside, right? So, so we read about Stephen, the first uh, Christian martyr, right? He was just sharing about Jesus. He was just telling people how, to, how, how God had reached out and, and how Jesus could save them from their sins and give them new life. And, and the leaders, the religious Jewish leaders became very jealous and threatened by that message. They felt their authority being challenged and their influence being diminished. And as a result, they stirred up the people and, and they ended up um, stoning Stephen and killing Stephen, right? Uh, we saw James, the, uh, the, the apostle, one of the original pillars of the church, um, the brother of John getting beheaded by Herod because Herod needed to uh, curry the favor of the religious leaders. He wanted to kind of support himself politically, so he killed and beheaded James. We've seen Peter imprisoned numerous times, <laughs> right? And every time, God just miraculously opens the doors and delivers him. Um, we've seen Paul go from being a persecutor of the church to being a believer in Jesus. And, and on his first missionary journey, he's already suffered tremendously, even in Lystra, to the point where they stoned him uh, and drug him outside of the city and left him to rot in the sun and die. And, and God miraculously protected his life and, and raised him up and allowed him to continue. So there's been a lot of persecution, a lot of suffering up to this point, right? But here's the thing. None of the, none of the threats that they face up to this point are as dangerous as this one. None of the dangers they've dealt with up to this point are as dangerous as this one. You know why? Because all the previous threats came from the outside. They were attempts to to silence them. They were attempts to thwart them. They were attempts to intimidate them. And the Spirit of God kept protecting them and and bringing them up and and encouraging them and, and sending them out. This morning's threat doesn't come from the outside, though. It comes from the inside. The threat we're looking at today is, is not to suppress the message of the gospel, but to distort the message of the gospel. And it is a much greater and much more dangerous threat. So I want you to think about the tension that gave rise to this threat. Uh, the, the church began as a Jewish movement because Jesus was a Jew. He was born uh, as a Jew under the law and Jewish custom. And, and, and all the original believers were either Jews or proselytes that would come to Jerusalem to worship. And, 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 and so for the first decade, 12 years, the, the church is predominantly Jewish, right? And it's growing in that area. But, but the center of the church shifts to Antioch. And for the first time, most of the believers are non-Jewish. They're Gentiles. And so what that does is for the Jewish believers who have enjoyed a season of persecution, true, but really the culture has been shaped by their culture. The culture of the church has been determined by, by their influence, their opinions, their background, their history, their preferences. They're suddenly in an entirely new environment with all these Gentiles who were starting to believe in Jesus. During this period of time, just remember that there was no value of, of tolerance or diversity, okay? Different cultures tolerated each other enough to make money and, and to preserve self. That was it. 
So, so they would interact in order to make money. They would interact in ways that, that they needed to to protect themselves. But they were openly um, uh, disgusted by each other. They were openly uh, defiant to one another. They condemned one another. They insulted one another. They didn't mix, right? Because they were, they were just fundamentally different. Um, and then suddenly you put all these guys together in one room. And what they have in common is their faith in Jesus, who, who died and rose again. And they have faith in Jesus. So now they, they have more in common with Christians than they do with their own culture. But that doesn't take away the rub of those two cultures coming together, of those two cultures coming and trying to worship together. So what ends up happening is when you're in a room surrounded by a bunch of people that look foreign, act weird, do things that offend you, don't do the things that comfort you, some things seem even morally offensive to you. You get a little afraid. That triggers insecurities in your heart. And what do you do when, when you start feeling that fear and that mistrust because people look different or eat different or challenge the things that make you feel important? See, when people feel threatened or afraid or uneasy, they tend to find comfort in surrounding themselves with people that are like them right? You tend to retreat, right? You can, you can kind of go out into this place, and, but if you, it gets too threatening, you pull back and you surround yourself with people that are more similar to you because you reflect, they reflect you to you, right? You like to be around people that say the things you say and wear the things you wear and, and, and have the same opinions you have and, 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 and all that stuff, right? All you got to do is look at a, uh, one of the most awkward and uneasy places on the face of the earth, right? A middle school lunchroom, when you, when you look at that place, I mean, is there any place more horrifying than that, right? You're, you're an adolescent, you're awkward, you're weird, you're stepping into this huge room, and you have to sit down and eat with people you don't know. It's terrifying. And so what ends up happening is, is you look around the room, and pretty soon you get clicks. That's what they're called, right? You get groups. You got, you got the jocks all sitting together. You got all the preps sitting together. You got all the nonconformists sitting together, nonconforming in all the same exact ways, right? They're all wearing the same non-conforming clothes, and, right? Because, because even in their non-conformity, they have to have a certain level of conformity. Everybody has to have kind of their, their home base. And so maybe they're angry at the rest of the world, but they got to have people that are angry in the same way <laughs> and look the same way. And so what ends up happening is we pull back into places of comfort. We pull back around people that are like us, that look like us, sound like us, and um, reduce our fear, reduce our tension right? So here's the challenge for the early church. This is critical. They're either going to pull back into their comfort zone and, and control um, the, the mission of the church. Um, they will reduce their fear and their tension by making insiders comfortable, or they're going to push out on mission, the mission of grace, into their discomfort. One of the central challenges of the early church is right here, the inward pull of community versus the outward push of mission. Because the people you have <laughs> pretty soon start demanding that you keep things comfortable at the expense of the people you don't have. There's the inward pull versus the outward push. See, grace gives us the courage to reject the fearful need for uniformity, and to discover the beauty of unity. Uniformity 
is what happens when we pull back and surround ourselves with people that are like us, reflect us to us, believe like we believe, have the same fears we have and, and hate the same sins we hate. Unity is what we have when we push forward into the diversity of the call of the gospel, surround ourselves with people that are unlike us, people that challenge us, people that, that, that maybe trigger our fears or our insecurities or ask questions we don't know how to answer or have opinions we don't like. But we find a common mission. And that's the mission of responding to grace, loving God, and loving others. Unity is beautiful. Uniformity is not. So we're going to unpack this um, and what's going on in our text. So let's take a look at the story of our text. I'm not going to, we have a lot of verses. I just want to kind of give an overview. So Antioch became the new center of the church, and there are more Gentiles than Jews there. And, uh, and so what ended up happening is, is you've got this special group of believers that came from, their Jewish believers that came from the background of Phariseeism. They're Pharisaical Jewish believers, right? Now, most of us, when we hear the word Pharisees, we automatically just substitute the phrase bad guys, because the Pharisees do, do a lot of things in the Bible that aren't real great. Uh, but that's really not that fair. Um, Paul was a Pharisee. In fact, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And when he became a believer, he became obviously a leader of grace. Um, the Pharisees, a lot of them became believers because their background was actually very conservative. See, even in, even in the Jewish world, there was a split between conservatives and progressives or conservatives and liberals. The Pharisees were the conservatives. The Sadducees were the liberals. So the Pharisees really valued the Word of God. They, they believed that it was inspired word for word. They, they really valued obedience to it, knowing the doctrines and knowing the, the uh, you know, how do we honor God? How do we follow God? What must we do to be the people of God? The Sadducees, on the other hand, were much more loosey-goosey with the text. They, they kind of took the doctrines they liked and rejected the ones they didn't. And there was a lot of tension between those two groups right? But what ended up happening is when Jesus came and he started speaking from the authority of the Old Testament text, a lot of Pharisees became believers because they valued the text, right? Now, here's the thing. When they became Pharisaical believers, the same patterns that were wired in them from being Pharisees followed them into being believers. So they were kind of like the fundamentalists of the Jewish movement. They became the early fundamentalists of the Christian movement. And so when they saw all these um, Gentiles becoming believers and, and, and bringing all their weirdness into the church, they kind of took it upon themselves to fix the problem. So they went down to Antioch, or up to Antioch, um, and, uh, and, and really uninvited, and decided to start correcting the problem. So they started teaching. So they saw all of these Gentiles who believed in Jesus, but they were still eating food that came from bad places, and they were still wearing the kind of garments that were ceremonial and clean. They didn't go through the ceremonial washings, and they were uncircumcised. That was so huge to them because circumcision was the sign of entering the Abrahamic covenant, right? And I don't know exactly how the Jewish men knew who was circumcised and who wasn't, but they had this weird sixth sense that they just, it was the circumcision sense, you know, you're not. And so they got really offended when people weren't circumcised. And so, so they really wanted people to be circumcised. So they're showing up and they're, and they're basically saying, look, it's good that you want to follow Jesus. It's good that you want to believe in Jesus because Jesus died and he rose again and you should believe in him. But, but you know what? You don't, you don't just need to believe in him, right? You want him as your savior, but you also want him as your Lord. It's good that you believe in Jesus to be saved. 
But you don't just get a Savior, you get a Lord. And what that means is that you need to obey Him. And the way you obey Him is by being circumcised. The way you honor Him is by reading the Old Testament text and obeying it. Don't you want to be that kind of believer? Don't you want to be an A-level believer? Don't you want to be a first-class believer? Don't you want to be a real believer? If you do, then you need to be like us. You need to obey the law. And then they would throw this out, basically, hey, you know, we're from the Jerusalem church. You remember the mother church, the first church? That's us, man. We're, we sat under the teaching of the original disciples, like Peter. We were taught by them. We're, we're of the original people, the original covenant people of God from the original church. We sat under the original disciples. And, and, and these guys, like this Paul guy, he wasn't one of the original disciples. He used to persecute the church. And, and it's not that his message is all wrong. It's just not all right. Right? He's got the believe in Jesus part down, but he's kind of forgetting the obey God part. Right? So you got you to not just believe in Jesus, but you need to get, get this stuff right. So Paul and Barnabas, when they hear about this... Um, end up moving into conflict with these teachers. They are very protective of their church, like, like good um, parents would be, these spirit, their spiritual children. And, and so when they hear these guys are coming in, man, they, they go and they, they speak to them and they confront them and they reason with them and they open up the scripture with them. And, and, and when they're not getting any headway, what they decide to do is appeal to the church in Jerusalem. Okay, so, so you only accept their authority. So let's go to them. Let's go to Peter. Let's go to James. Let's submit the question to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem and see what they have to say. All right, so let me pause here for a second. Why is this such a big deal? What's really at stake here? Are these Pharisees, I mean, really, are these Pharisees really bad guys? See, here's the thing. I don't think we can fully appreciate the tension that these guys were being asked to live with. I mean, it, it, it's, it's pretty uh, crazy. Culturally, um, the Jews um, were people of the Torah, people of the law. They were the people of God, and, and they had been raised from, from their first breath to, to realize that their faith affected every area of their life. There was no sacred and secular with them. Everything was sacred. Everything from their food to their clothing to their holy days to, to their rhythms through everything was commanded by the law. And became an issue of, of holiness, not just culture, but holiness for them. And so um, when, when they came together um, with these other people, it, it created tension, right? They were unique in the world. The Jews were monotheistic. They believed in a single God. But in their, they were in a world of polytheism. They were surrounded by the Greek and Latin cultures, and, and the Greek culture was polytheistic. They believed in many gods. They, they were a people that were, that were uh, very, very careful about what they ate, and, and the, the Greeks couldn't care less. And, and, and the Jews, when they got together, man, they, they went through their ceremonial washings before they even put the food in their mouth. And, and it wasn't because they were waging microbial warfare. They didn't even know about that. It was waging spiritual warfare. When they washed, it was about washing off the defilement that had come on them simply from interacting with these pagan cultures. They saw this as so fundamental and important that it drove every area of their life. And not surprisingly, as we have mentioned in previous sermons, the table, the dinner table, became the crisis point for the early church because it's at the dinner table. Now, when when they came together to worship, they didn't do it like this. 
This is a wet, very Western format. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no, technically nothing right about it. Uh, it's just our way of doing it. It's cultural. When they gathered, they gathered around a meal. They had what was called a love feast, and, and they would share a meal together, and there would be teaching, and there would be worship, and, and, they, and, and, it, and it was very uh, appropriate to their culture. The problem is when you get together and share a meal with people, you're sitting down and sharing fellowship at a very intimate level. And when the Gentiles sat down with their meat sacrificed to idols and, 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 and their meat that, that still had the blood in it and, 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 and they didn't wash their hands and, and they didn't go through the ritual, that made the Jews incredibly uncomfortable. Simply being in their presence, They've been taught their whole lives. Simply being in the presence of that meal made them ceremonially unfit for the presence of God. They would have had gone through special ritual cleansing just to go back to the temple. So the shared meals became a place of real tension. So these things weren't just annoying to the Jewish mind. They were defiling because they had been taught to see these things not as cultural, but as moral issues. So I want you to think about it like this. Maybe this will help us enter into it. I want you to think about the most conservative person you know who considers themselves a Christian. Most conservative person you know. Maybe, maybe it's one of your grandparents. Maybe it's that Sunday school teacher you had as a kid whose, whose bun was pulled so tight it made your eyes water, right? Maybe it was uh, a pastor or a leader, somebody that you really respect, maybe, maybe even have a little bit of hero worship for but they're just super conservative. Maybe it's you. I don't know. But I want you to imagine being that person for a moment. Okay. And you've been invited back to the church of your youth, a place that you remember fondly. It's the place where, you know, you acted up and were disciplined. It's the place where you were taught the word of God. It's the place where, where there was a, a community of people around you that, that encouraged you and celebrated you and reinforced. Uh, and, and it was a place of, of learning and growth and challenge. And maybe you rebelled a little bit, but it was also, you had a lot of fond memories there. All right. So you got invited back because this church has seen a revival as of late. There's been like this huge influx of new believers and they've contacted some of you former members to say, hey, why don't you come back and celebrate with us? And so you come back, right? A place that you love and remember fondly. And, um, and as you pull up, right, there's a little cement bench off in that little garden that your Aunt Gertie, you know, donated to the church. And it's got a cool little plaque on it about, I don't know, enjoying flowers and birds and butterflies with some scripture verse. You know what I'm saying? So, so like you got this fond memory of your Aunt Gertie who gave it. And you go inside and, 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 and all the windows have been donated by different people in the church. And there's the window your parents donated, right, with a plaque underneath it. May this help you enter into the transcendent beauty of our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, and you're like, yes, my parents did that. This is my heritage. And as you're walking down the aisle, you're touching the pews, and you remember as a child hours and hours and hours of suffering in this place. But it's joy to you now, as you remember the fondness, right? And, and of course, you work your way down to the fellowship hall because what church doesn't have a fellowship hall, right? It's in the basement. It still smells like stale coffee and fried food. And and you come down there, and suddenly your nostalgia is disrupted because they're not playing the comfortable background music that you're used to in this place. The calming, soothing Hillsong Maranatha. (laughs) This stuff's weird, like weird. And you're pretty confident those aren't even Christians singing. I mean, it's just, 
loud and kind of abrasive. And you come down and it's filled with all these young people, which are kind of cool. It's like, okay, I've been young people around here for a while, but they're dressed weird, right? They're, they're wearing weird things that you shouldn't be in a church, right? Little mini skirts and maybe bikini tops. This is California, okay? And, and, and the dudes are wearing shorts and flip-flops. They're not wearing business casual attire like they're supposed to. They're wearing shorts and, and T-shirts, and on their T-shirts, man, they're not even, not even bad Christian knockoff T-shirts. They're actually wearing like ACDC back in black T-shirts or, or Stairway to Heaven, you know. And, 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 and you're like really at this point getting, hmm, hmm, this is, this is a little uncomfortable. And then you sit down for your meal, and they bring you a, uh, a box lunch, and there's a sticker right on top of it that says Planned Parenthood. And they were doing a, a fundraiser uh, for the, the clinic. And the people organizing the lunch went and bought a bunch of box lunches to serve during this. And, uh, and then you reach for your soda, and it's got a little sticker on it that says, provided for you with joy by the local chapter of the Gay Straight Alliance. And then you walk over to the dessert table, and there's a little little sign on it that says, these desserts provided for you from your friendly neighbors at the mosque. You as an uber-conservative Christian, how do you feel right now? You going to eat with a glad heart? celebrating the grace of God and the explosive growth of the gospel in this community? Is that what's going to happen? Are you going to instead maybe eat with a little bit of guilt? Like, I don't think I should do this, but maybe even anger. Are you going to refuse to eat? I'm not even going to touch this. Sit here silently in defiance. You're just going to get up and leave. This wasn't what I thought. I'm not comfortable here. I think I'll leave. And then what do you do? When you leave, you, you go find people that have your same history, your same culture, your same anger, your same prejudices, right? People who sin like you sin and hate the same sin you hate. And then you're going to be like, what were they thinking? How can you buy box lunches at Planned Parenthood? Are you kidding me? Don't they know they're funding sin? Don't they know their money is going to, to these evil places? How can you partner with evil? How can you partner with sin? And they get angry, and their anger is reflected back to them. And, and what happens in that moment? Do, do they get less angry or more angry? Of course, they get more angry. They get stirred up. Their insecurities are inflamed. Their fears feel like they're absolutely founded. They start maligning the leaders. Obviously, those, those leaders, those leaders, I mean, they're misguided at best and evil at worst. I wonder if they're messengers of Satan. You know what? I think they need us to fix them. They need us to help them. They need us to rescue them. They need us if they want to get to God. So they go back. Not to celebrate the grace of God, but actually end up working to undermine the grace of God. Because these people don't hate the same sin in the same way they hate it. 
See, that illustration, some of you are really uncomfortable right now. You're not liking me very much. That illustration falls way short of how uncomfortable the Jewish believers would have felt. It doesn't even come close to the discomfort and the angst that would have come up in their hearts as they interacted with Gentiles in that environment. Falls way short. But that's the tension they faced. And the Jews showed up and they were sitting there eating meat sacrificed to idols straight from the pagan marketplace. They sat down with unwashed hands, like, like unwashed hands. And so the, the thing, the defilement that was on the outside of their body was consumed and became part of who they were. And they looked at that and they were shocked and offended. And these people weren't even circumcised. No one had even bothered to teach them about the law of Moses. No one had even bothered to teach them about what they should do. And if they aren't like us, how can they be with us? So you guys, what's at stake here? What would have happened if the Judaizers had remained unconfronted? What would have happened if, if they had come in and actually undermined the work of Paul and Barnabas and the church shifted and listened to them and Paul and Barnabas became um, ostracized and, and their voice was diminished? A lot of bad things. All right, I want to make it clear that their push for uniformity wasn't driven by a zeal for God's holiness. That's what they claimed it was for. It was really driven by their fear. There were things going on they couldn't control. There were things going on that they didn't like. It was going in a direction they couldn't predict where it would end. And you got to put up bumpers, man. You got to keep people on the alley. You can't just let them go free range. Right? So, so their fear drove them and their need for comfort inspired them. They were uncomfortable and afraid. And, that, and so as a result, they wanted uniformity. They wanted, they wanted them to look like us and sound like us and hate the same sins we hate and, and have the same values we have. We want to get to a place where we share the same language. See, it was about reducing tension and fear and the unease of having to actually embrace diversity and be around people that pushed on their thinkings in ways they didn't like to be pushed on and, and, and were doing things they didn't like that they were doing. So they pushed back by drawing lines and saying, this is the line and this is how you stay in. And if you're outside of that line, you're not in. So come inside the line. Come and be like us. And they drew lines God didn't draw. And as a result, in areas where people should have had freedom of conscience, freedom to actually listen to the Spirit of God, they were now no longer free to do so. See, in their zeal, they started speaking for God. If you want to be near God, you've got to be like us. And they tried to make their cultural understanding of God the gateway to God. It was a push for uniformity, and it was about cultural comfort. And so in the end, they wanted to share commonalities, be circumcised like us, eat the same food as us, wear the same clothes as us, speak the same language as us, have this, the same cultural ethos as us, hate the same sins we hate, 
in the ways we hate them and ironically tolerate the same sins we tolerate in the ways we tolerate them. Because every culture hates certain sins in certain ways and tolerates other sins in other ways. And the Pharisees, as they surrounded themselves with people just like them, they came blind to the sins they ignored and blind to the pride that they had toward the sins they hated. So you end up loving the same things and despising the same things. That's uniformity. It is a forced commonality that comes from a common culture, a common look, a common expectation, and it comes through the enforcement of law. You have to be like us if you want to be one of us. The problem with this, you guys, is uh, it undermines the unity of the gospel, true unity of the gospel, which comes from a common mission that unifies diverse people, and it misrepresents the gospel itself. Because now it's no longer leading people to become conformed to the image of Christ. Now it's leading people to be conformed to my image of the image of Christ. I've created God in my image, and you want to be like him means you need to be like me. It's incredibly arrogant. But it's done in the name of God. If this had happened, if this had happened, the church would have stayed fundamentally Jewish, would have, one, hindered the growth into the Gentile world, So it would have stunted the growth of the early church, kept it encapsulated in and around Jerusalem so that when the destruction of Jerusalem came in AD 70, it would have been almost completely destroyed and we probably would not be talking about Jesus today. God protected his church by not allowing these men to distort the message of grace being driven by their insecurity. These people in the name of God were trying to control the work of God and were in the process seeking to undermine the grace of God. So what did the early church do? They responded. They responded. Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem. They met with with Peter, a representative of the apostles. James, a representative of the elders of the church. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And with all the elders of the church. And they met privately and they discussed all this and they hammered it and they listened and they prayed and then they had a public meeting in which they invited people in, and there they, they again, had, had comments and questions, but they had a battle plan at this point. Um, they they um, started very progressively sharing the vision of the gospel. Peter gets up first, and, and Peter says, hey, you guys remember Cornelius, the Roman centurion that God led me to go talk to? And he's a God-fearer, but he wasn't a proselyte. He wasn't circumcised. Well, when I preached the gospel to him, and he believed in Jesus, the Spirit of God fell on him. So who am I to say God won't bless the uncircumcised? It's very clear that God blessed him, so who am I to say he can't be blessed? Can I stand in the way of God? So he was saved by grace through faith. Who are we to put conditions and rules on that? that that's what we need to say. So Peter sits down, and at this point, everybody's silenced. Now, Barnabas and Paul, it's interesting in the text, it goes back to that original Barnabas and Paul, not Paul and Barnabas, because in this context, Barnabas has the more authoritative voice. In the, in the Jerusalem church, Barnabas carries more weight. So he becomes the chief spokesman. And they talk about all the things God did in their Gentile mission. And then after they sit down, James gets up, the lead elder of the church, and he kind of punctuates it. He brings it to a close by, by quoting the Old Testament and showing them that the Old Testament even predicted that it, the work had to expand to the Gentiles. That God had, had in fact, the, in the Torah, had predicted that this was, in fact, part of God's plan. And at the end of it, they all agree. They find unity in facing this challenge. 
And at the end, they say, okay, so here are some requirements that we should put on these Gentile believers. Here are four things we should put on the believers, which seems kind of interesting, maybe weird when you first read it, because you're like, well, wait a minute, you just said there are no requirements. It's just faith in Jesus, right? So now why are you giving four requirements? Is this your way of kind of being two-faced and trying to have it both ways? Is this your way of of saying, well, yes, 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 it's by grace through faith only, but you know what? We want to kind of pacify the Pharisaical believers, kind of throw them a bone, you know? So let's just throw some rules in there so that they feel there are like, okay, there are some rules, okay? So try to keep them happy. Well, absolutely not. Because in the letter that they sent to the church at Antioch, the first thing they say is, hey, those teachers who came and taught you, they didn't come from us. They distanced themselves from them. They said, those people were not from us, and that is not our message. We're in line with Paul and Barnabas. We are of one accord. This wasn't a bone thrown to um, the, the legalistic faction. This was the, the leaders of the church looking at the Gentiles and saying, you've received grace, now extend grace. You've received grace from God and have been accepted unconditionally and lovingly. Now we want you to reach out in that same grace because your Jewish brothers are having a really, really hard time eating with you. So if you'll do these things, you'll really help them out. Will you, in love for the Jewish brothers, set aside your freedom? It is your freedom, but will you set it aside for their good? And not only that, there are Jewish unbelievers that we're trying to reach in your community. And when they're invited to your meals, they're never going to hear what you have to say because they're going to be so offended by what you're doing. So if you do these things, you're going to be reaching out in grace to your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ and to the Jewish unbelievers who we're trying to reach with the gospel. And we know that because all four things deal with the table. The four rules that they say are, are donate anything that was sacrificed to idols. So, hey, we know that the best meat comes from the meat market, and we know it's at the cheapest price, but, but when you're eating with your Jewish uh, brothers and sisters, will you not eat meat that was sacrificed in ritual um, idol worship? You're free to do so. Right? Go ahead. If you want your Planned Parenthood box lunch, you're free to have it. But, but when you're with these guys, just refrain because it blocks them from experiencing the grace of God with you. And, and, and abstain from animals that were strangled. Because if you eat an animal that was strangled, the blood's still in the meat. You didn't bleed it out. And so they would strangle an animal and cook it with the blood still in it. And to a Jew, that was, that was super offensive. Because they were taught, it's in the Bible, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so they were forbidden from eating blood. So any meat they ate had to be properly prepared. And so when they ate, that was very offensive. In fact, the third regulation is that very thing. Just, just don't eat blood, okay? <laughs> just skip the blood thing, right? So no blood sausage, just, just not that, okay? And then the fourth thing is sexual immorality. Abstain from sexual immorality, which seems a little bit odd because all three of the previous ones deal with fellowship at the table. So why would they throw a, uh, a moral obligation? Hey, just stop having sex outside of marriage, stop having concubines, stop sleeping with, with um, temple prostitutes. See, I don't think that's what he's talking about. And most commentators would agree. Most commentators would say that, that what he is actually saying here is you need to separate yourself from places of sexual immorality because when the Jews see you at that temple where there is prostitution or there is sex slavery or there are these things that are going on and then you come and eat with them, You're creating a a barrier from them being able to enter into your presence. So connect with those people outside of that environment. 
Don't, don't go to the temple to speak with them. Find other environments. Create a separation between you and those environments. It's not that they were in sin by going there and, and making relationships and sharing the gospel. It's that they were creating a barrier to fellowship at the table by publicly doing so. And so they're saying, in love, create those relationships in other ways. They're not saying stop making those relationships, but, but create a barrier, right? All dealing with table fellowship. Um, and so these were, in fact, the early church recognized this, and the church has since recognized that these were advice, not law. And they were for a specific period of time from this transition from a Jewish to a Gentile church. So they're not binding on us today, right? Even though it says, hey, these four things, they're not saying, hey, these are the four things you have to do in order to be a believer. What they're saying is during this period of time, this is how you protect table fellowship. So if you want to have your blood sausage, you're fine, okay? Um, those restrictions, those laws are, are not binding on us today. Those are not um, conditional, right? Because what they're saying, and they're reinforcing, the central message is this. You're saved by grace, not your performance. You're saved by what God has done for you, not what you do for God. You don't, you're not saved because you cleaned yourself up for God. You're not saved because you stopped doing this thing and started doing this thing. You're not, you're not cleansed because you somehow make yourself less unrighteous and more righteous. You are cleansed because you're completely unclean. But Jesus died and rose again that you might be cleansed and forgiven. You are saved by grace through faith. When you trust in the finished work of Christ, that's it, man. That is it. That is what justifies. It is your faith in your Savior, not your performance for your Savior. So they are reinforcing that very central message of the gospel. But they're saying, in your receiving of love, act in love. In your receiving of grace, don't make your freedom a barrier for someone else to enter into grace. Right? So they send the letter back to Antioch. The letter is, um, you can't really tell in the English, but in the original Greek, it is a classic example of Greek rhetoric. And so it's interesting. They even write the letter to the Gentile church in a non-Jewish way. (laughs) They write the letter to the church in a Greek way because they don't even want the letter itself to become a point of division. So they model the very thing they're asking. They model, they set aside their cultural practices and take the cultural practices of the people they're trying to reach with the love of God and then communicate to them that very love. And the church celebrates. Uh, There's a huge party and, uh, and it's awesome. Now the Pharisaical Christians, as we all know, the Pharisaical Christians heard this great news that they were wrong and they humbled themselves and repented immediately on the spot, right? They were like, we are so wrong. We reject our pride. We humble ourselves and embrace the way of grace. Not so much. There were probably some, thank God. Uh, in fact, praise God for recovering Pharisees, right? Praise God, because I'm one of them, right? Um, those that, that would get in the way of grace, but God continually invites into the path of grace. The core group of Pharisaical leaders leave this meeting unconvinced and actually become a thorn in Paul's side for the rest of his ministry. And we'll take a look at that as we continue moving through the book of Acts. So how do we, what should should we take away from this? What are some applications? Um, There's a ton here, by the way, a ton here, like leadership lessons, man, when I was reading this, the way Paul humbled himself and took a back seat, the way they empowered Peter and, and James to take the primary vocal place, and they just took a support role, um, 
so many very careful strategic elements that were just rooted in their humility. They didn't need to have the platform. Their question was, how do we lead the church? How do we envision the church to lead in a healthy way? Man, there's a ton here. But those aren't the primary lessons, I think, that are there for us this morning. So I want to hit a few um, this morning. The first is this. We're in danger when we focus more on the inward pull of community instead of the outward push of mission. Any church is in danger the minute they become more responsive to who they have instead of to who they don't have. When they start catering to the opinions and the desires and the whining and the preferences of the Christians they have instead of thinking continually, how do we carry the gospel to the people that need to become believers in Christ? See, when we cater to the people we have, we sacrifice those we don't. And an inwardly focused church is unhealthy because they lose mission. You can't be inwardly focused and on mission. You can't be focused on your comfort and the mission of God because the mission of God always calls you to step outside of your comfort, always calls you to move forward in ways that are difficult or challenging or uncomfortable, but you're happy to do so. In fact, you're joyful to do so because you're a messenger sent with such an incredible message. As soon as you get focused on your comfort above the mission, You'll sacrifice the mission. So you lose mission. And ironically, these same churches end up losing community because they become a caricature of true community. In the same way, uniformity is a character of unity. It's not the same thing. They act like they're happy and they act like everything's good. And maybe they even have a lot of joy, but they, they actually lose the attractiveness of their very community because they'll only attract the people who are already like them. People that aren't like them come around and they feel like outsiders. It's kind of like if you're one of the insiders and you're standing in the lobby and you're surrounded by all these people and you're laughing and you're smiling and somebody who's different than you walks by and maybe you smile at them, maybe you nod and you're like, man, we are a friendly church. And yet they're walking on the outside of the circle and never, never invited in. How long is it going to take before they get the message? We're not for you. You're not welcome here. And they're going to find the back door. Because what you have is a, a caricature of community. Because you've abandoned mission. And you're subtly communicating to those that aren't like you, you aren't worthy. And maybe in your words you're saying God loves you, but in your actions you're saying maybe God loves you over there. And you're no longer a community of grace. You're now a community of greed. See, a community of grace is about generosity. It's about moving and giving and sacrificing for others. A community of greed is all about my experience, my preferences, my opinions, what makes me feel comfortable. So it undercuts mission and it misrepresents God. Secondly, we're in danger when we push for uniformity instead of unity. So uniformity is a fake form of unity, but it is worldly and it is demonic. Uniformity is all about looking the same, acting the same, surrounding yourself with people that have the same preferences as you, people who hate the sins, same sins as you, people who ignore the same sins as you. It looks like unity, but it is not. Gospel unity is, is when we have kingdom values coming out in the mission of grace. So in other words, humility and, and patience and loving, those are the values and they come out on the mission of grace, which is to see you grow in Christ and see people that are far from Christ brought near Here's the thing, fundamentalists tend to unify around truth. 
and they have their key truths, and they just want to surround themselves with people who, who echo those same truths. Progressives unify around action, and they want to surround themselves with people who are, who are action-oriented in the same way they want to be on mission or in action. The gospel unifies us around an experience of grace. That is so fundamentally different and important. The gospel unifies us as those who have drunk deeply at the fountain of grace. It's founded on truth. And it expresses itself in action. But the unifying power is the experience of grace. Unity comes when we are a people in love with grace. We just drink deeply of God's love for us so much so that we are freed in love toward others. And we invite them in and we stop feeling the incessant need to fix them or change them or judge them or be angry at them or, or condemn them. And, and we're so full of God's generosity, we flow in generosity toward those that are different from us. That's when we find genuine unity because we're not going to force people to be like us, to be with us. We will celebrate the grace of God together, and we will trust in that grace to do what law can't. And we will preach Christ, and we will let the message carry its own power because we won't have a need to control people and to fix people and tell them, hey, you can't think like that, and hey, you can't do that. See, uniformity requires other people to change. Unity requires us to change. Uniformity pridefully asserts, you need to be like me to be with me. Unity humbly says, do we have a common ground of an experience of grace? Can we find a commonality on which to worship the same God and move forward on the same mission? It's not an ignoring of truth. It's a very different approach to truth. It's not an ignoring of action and mission. It's a very different approach to action and mission. Uniformity reinforces pride. Unity fosters and models humility. Uniformity will repel unbelievers because when unbelievers see you in your uniformity, they'll see you as a clique and they'll feel as an outsider to it. And they'll see you as self-righteous and and, uh, celebrating yourself. But here's the thing, genuine grace-driven unity is attractive. Unbelievers will come around and say, I don't think like you, but I sure like being with you. I want what you have. I don't believe what you believe but I want what you have. When a church is driven by that kind of grace and and that kind of love, unbelievers will be naturally attracted because they won't feel judged and alienated and left out. They'll be invited. And as people model the love of Christ, they're invited to experience it themselves. All right, so when we do this, we're also in danger. We're motivated by fear instead of love. Here's the thing. Fear is super deceptive because... Fear, when it's empowered by our pride, will feel so justified. I have seen people destroy churches. I have seen people undermine the gospel. I have seen people defame the glorious name of our Savior, all in the name of God. See, we all deal with fear. We all deal with the insecurity of comes from being off balance. We're interacting with cultural currents that we're not familiar with and we don't know how to respond to. We all feel that tension. And that's why we all need to fight so desperately for humility. Humility is essential 
because pride will turn our fear into honor. And we will tear down the work of God and the name of God and expect to get a medal for it. Humility allows us to process our fear, grow in our understanding of of God's grace, of ourselves and others with whom we have very little in common. Because it allows us to rest in the God of grace. See, grace carries its own power. Grace does what law never could. It changes people, including us. Fear is all about putting limitations and boundaries and bumpers in place to keep people on the straight and narrow because we're afraid if they get off, they won't come back. We don't trust grace. But grace actually has the power to transform the human heart, to realign human affections, to free people into the glory of God. When we trust grace, it allows us to move most in the most healthy way in truth and then in the most healthy way on mission and in action. Because it's His church, it's His mission, it's His grace, and it's His power. All right, I'm going to put some reflection questions up. I'm going to ask you to, to pray and let God speak to your heart. Um, after that, we're going to share communion. Uh, but I'll introduce that when we get there. Let me pray for us so we'll go in time of reflection. Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace. We would be absolutely hopeless if that weren't the case. And I thank you, Lord, that it is your grace, it is your love that transforms us and sets us free. You don't say, I believe you, now go fix yourself. (laughs) Or I love you, go fix yourself. You say, I love you. Rest in my love. I love you. Be transformed by my love. I love you. Drink more deeply of the well of my love. Man, what an incredible invitation that the God of the universe, the Holy One, the Sovereign, would not look at us in our fitful pride and our self-centered vain glory. Man, you look at us and you invite us to drink so deeply of your love. Break our hearts with that love that we might actually truly be humble and have nothing to prove and no war to fight other than the war of love. And we might see people far from you brought near. We might see those who are believers set free more powerfully, more beautifully into that grace. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.